Judges 19 is where we will be this morning. When I was a young boy, I don't recall exactly what age I was, um, but there was a day that I went outside and I was just playing out in the front yard and I saw that there was a, there was a bird that had made a nest in our crab apple tree. And I decided in my youth and as, a, as a, the young boy that I was that I would have a little bit of fun at the expense of this bird and this nest. The bird was sitting there in the nest and I decided that I was going to jump and grab a hold of that branch that that bird was in and shake the branch. And I did so until the bird flew away. I had my little fun. Ha ha, look at me teasing the bird. It wasn't until later... And this was several hours later that I was confronted with the consequences of my actions. Unbeknownst to me, there was little tiny little hatchlings within that nest. And when I was bouncing that branch, I inadvertently bounced those little baby birds out of the nest and onto the ground where they, their lives came to an abrupt end. And when I discovered this, when I came outside several hours later and I discovered these dead baby birds bleeding out onto the driveway and the gruesome image that that was, I was truly confronted with the reality of, of my actions. And I, I just felt so guilty, first of all, just for, for the, my actions and just uh, treating that bird in that way. But... but it was the baby birds that confronted me and, and just showed me so much about the, the evil of what I was engaged in. My cruelty resulted in that bloody picture right there in front of me, and that image is forever seared into my mind. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to kill baby birds. I thought I was just having fun with, with, the, uh, with the mommy or the daddy bird or whatever was there. But it didn't matter what I intended it to do, the result of the actions and the consequences of my actions were there, and it didn't excuse my behavior regardless of my intentions. There was a gruesome, bloody image right there in front of me, and legitimately, it made me sick to my stomach that I caused the death of those baby birds. And truly, it has forever changed my relationship to God's creation, like I will never forget that, and, and I, I'm, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not an animal pacifist in the sense, I, like hunting and like all this, I'm not a vegetarian or any of those things, but I do believe we have a responsibility to steward God's creation well and to not be abusive to God's creation, and that moment was a, such a significant point in my understanding of how I am to engage with God's creation. Sometimes we have to stare into the face of the consequences of our own actions before we get the point of something. And it's not always a fun thing to do. And sometimes it's really ugly. It takes our breath away. It makes us sick to our stomachs. But, but in those moments, sometimes the healthiest thing that we can do is to stare at what we have created and to reckon with what we see, what is right there in front of us, and to burn that image into our minds so that we never forget what we have done. I think that is the case with our text today as we are in the book of Judges and here in chapter 19. I mentioned last week as I was prefacing the end to the book of Judges that this ending is anything but pleasant. It's, it's, it, these are truly challenging texts. These stories make us sick to our stomachs, and they should. They should bother us. And I, I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again, that, that sickening feeling that, that we may experience as we dive into the details of this text. Those, that, that sickening feeling is not something that we should just gloss over or try to escape from or, or get away from that. No, we, no, we're supposed to stare into the face of our own depravity and see how vile sin really is. See what happens when we forsake the Lord and we turn our back on the King of Kings. This is where it leads us. And we would do well to not try to push the yucky feeling away. 
I made a comment to someone this week as I was studying this text that, you know, I, I've been studying this and sometimes I feel like I just need to go take a shower after I'm done because you just feel dirty because of what's contained here. Well, that's, that's a good feeling. Don't, don't push that away. Embrace that for the gift that it is because we want to see how vile our sin is. Last week we saw how a rejection of the king inevitably leads to rampant idolatry and the pursuit of selfish ambition. And those things led to a variety of sins. We saw brutality, theft, and selfish, exploitative, and opportunistic behavior. This week the dial is really turned up to 11 in terms of, of the evil that was present in Israel, demonstrating her utter need for not just a godly king, but the king. They needed the Messiah. They needed a Savior. And we're going to see how the rejection of the rule of God leads to brutality, immorality, inhospitality, cowardice, and callousness. You know, we could divide this chapter into about four parts, and we're going we're to look at it through these headings today. We're going to see some surprising hospitality, and this this first paragraph of our text of chapter 19, it serves as what is called a literary foil. If that's not terminology you're familiar with, a foil is is a character whose purpose in the story is to highlight something about a later character. There's there's kind of the, the, the characteristics of this individual makes the other characteristics of this other person stand out all the more. Right, so in literary terms, we think of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Dr. Watson is a foil to highlight the brilliance of Sherlock Holmes, right? Well, that's what we're finding in the first paragraph of our text today, where we see some surprising hospitality. In the next two paragraphs, we, we find that there are some hints that there's, not something, there's something wrong here. There's not something quite right in the city of Gibeah. And those details might seem relatively benign to us at first, but when we begin to understand the cultural expectations and what the law of Moses instructed about how uh, the people were to treat sojourners, it becomes that much more eyebrow-raising as we see surprising inhospitality in contrast to what we saw in the first paragraph. The fourth paragraph has the shocking sins of the men of the city, And then the final paragraph gives us the shocking response of the Levites. That kind of gives us an overview for where we are going. Let's begin to look at our text as we see surprising hospitality in this first paragraph of Judges 19. Verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel... A certain Levite was sojourning in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So once again, our author prefaces this story with this reminder that what we're about to see, this is a result of the reality that the people have rejected God as their king. There is no king in Israel. There's no one to direct them in the way they ought to go. There's no one to curtail them. There's no one to provide proper judgment and proper rulership over them. So that is the preface to the story. Something else that you might notice as we go through this story is none of the characters in the story are named. We will have characters such as the Levites, the concubine, There'll be the father-in-law. We'll see an old man. We'll see these individuals that are just referred to as these individuals, but they are never given names. This lack of specificity, specificity may be an indication that this story is meant to sketch for us that this is something that is representative of the entire nation of Israel. This isn't just one isolated incident and one isolated story where you have this particular individual in particular places and times, but rather the the ambiguity and rather the the namelessness of the character shows us that, hey, this this could be any Levite, any concubine. It was happening so much that these sorts of issues were not limited to this one specific story. It sketches for us that this is a greater problem 
in Israel than just this isolated incident. But these individuals are highlighted because of where this story does take us. So let's continue reading on in verse 2. It says, His concubine was unfaithful to him. She, she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. <clears throat> I do need to pause for a moment here at this verse as well. I need you to know that there's a, there's a, there's a textual issue with this verse. The word for she was unfaithful, it's actually a little bit of a stronger word than what is here in the ESV. If you look at some other translations, it might render it a little bit more strongly. Uh, the concept is, is that she prostituted herself. She engaged in harlotry. It's a very strong terminology to refer. It wasn't just simply being unfaithful, committing adultery. It was that, but it was more. She was prostituting herself. That's what that word means. But that word is also very nearly identical to another Hebrew word that simply means to be angry with or to feel repugnance toward someone or something. And I want to show us these Hebrew words just up on the screen and you can see just how very similar they are. There's just a, a point of, of punctuation almost as it looks on the top and the bottom. You see the very slight differences and then even how it is transliterated into an English uh, pronunciation. They are so similar that if you were to even to say these words quickly, they may even sound the same even as they are pronounced verbally. And so this has led to textual issues, whether what, you know, which manuscript has what and what, what, you know, the, the Septuagint has one thing or has another. Contextually, some have made the argument that her being angry with her husband makes more sense within the context because of just how eager he was to pursue after her and try to, try to reconcile with her and all of these things. Others argue that if she was truly prostituting herself in in that way, that it should be a little surprise because of, well, this is, the, this is where we're at in the state of Israel. This is, this is where things are. There's immorality in the land. Personally, I do think that her being angry fits the context a little bit more simply because it seems that in the context of this passage, the narrator does want us to sympathize with the plight of the concubine. And so, whatever the situation was, perhaps... The Levite did something that was, wasn't right, it wasn't good, and so now she's angry with him, and so she leaves her husband, she goes to her father's house, and she's there for four months before the Levite comes to get her. So I do believe that it is likely that, that she was angry with her husband, that she did not commit immorality in this text, um, but there is a textual issue there. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't necessarily have to make a, a great significance on our bearing of the text, other than directing us to where our sympathies ought to lie. Is this a character that we are sympathetic towards? Or is this a character who is getting what she deserves for her actions? I think the text would lead us to be sympathetic towards this concubine. And so I think that that's, that is the conclusion that I have come to as I have studied this text. But as we do continue reading on, we see the, they do reconcile, they do come back together. And so let's read on beginning with verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them, they sat, they ate, they drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Oh, be pleased to spend the night, and, and let your heart be merry. And when the man arose to, to get up to go, the father-in-law pressed him until the day, the night, uh, to spend the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, "Oh, strengthen your hand and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his, and 
his concubine and his servants arose to depart. The father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, where that is Jerusalem. And he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. As we read this, we might stop and wonder, like, man, what's, what is going on here? He's, the father-in-law is like, oh, yeah, you know, spend the night, in the morning you can go. And then the morning comes, he says, oh, just, just hang out a little while longer, we'll have some food, and then you can go when it's evening. And then when evening comes, well, spend the night and you can go. He's going around and around. He's just—he's holding him in. He's keeping him there, and this goes on for five days. And we go, what, okay, what's what's the point of all of this? Well, as I discussed in our introduction, as we talked about this paragraph being a foil, this is to set up a contrast for what's coming. We see this over-the-top hospitality. This father-in-law, he is bringing out all the stops as it's described here. As all these things are are broken out. Oh, they they did all this. Wasn't just hey, you know, let's. Let's have some breakfast, you know, let's have some cinnamon rolls, and let's just have a, you know, a light breakfast before you send you on your way. He's breaking out all the stops. Like, this is, he's having a full feast. This is a party almost that, that we're just, it's just going on for days and for days and for days. They're eating, they're drinking, they're, they're having a merry time together. This is just over-the-top hospitality than even what would have been expected in those days for a son-in-law to be visiting with his father-in-law. And so they, they have this, this great time together. Eventually, the son-in-law says, no, okay, I really have got to get out of here. I've got to go. It's time for me to leave. So he eventually breaks away, even though his father-in-law per- says, oh, no, no, it's, it's night again now. Just, just hang out a little while, and then you can go in the morning. He recognizes if I just stay another day, I'm going to get stuck here another day, so it's time for me to go on. But we see this just over-the-top hospitality that is being granted to this man, and that will stand in stark contrast for what is to come. But notice, though, that they didn't end up leaving until the day was nearly spent. It says, the, the, um, the day has waned toward evening. The, the shadows are growing long, right? We're getting towards the end of the day. And he says, no, it's time for me to leave. I need to get going, and I don't want to be detained another day. And so he goes on. And it is because he left late in the day that sets up what we're about to see in the following paragraphs. So if that was a surprising amount of hospitality, he's just going over the top, over and beyond anything that would would be given normally. In our next couple of paragraphs, we see surprising inhospitality of the city where he is going to stay. Verse 11. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. The servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of those places, one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They, and, there, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So we have this situation as it's unfolding. Because they set out so late and because they did not, they probably didn't get as far as they might have wanted in their travels. As a result, they had the option of turning aside to spend the night in, in Jebus, which is Jerusalem. But at that time, Jebus, Jerusalem, was not an Israelite city. It did not belong to the Israelites at that time. It had, they had if we were to recall and go back in the book of Judges, we would see that they had captured Jerusalem, but at another point it had been recaptured by the Jebusites, and such is the case here in this story. They're controlled by the Jebusites. And so this man, being a Levite, 
being a man who's supposed to be in service to the Lord, being a, a clean man who's not to engage in anything that would make him ritually unclean, he does not want to spend the night with the Jebusites. He doesn't want to spend the night in a foreign city, but rather in the city of his countrymen, in the city of his brothers. So he comes to Gibeah, supposing that that might be a safer place, that might be a, a better location for him to stay, because, hey, these are my brethren. This is my countrymen. These are my people. But notice in verse 15, when he comes into Gibeah, that they end up spending the night in the open square. Why? The text tells us, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. There's two things that stand out about that statement. That Perhaps it doesn't strike us much as, you know, if we're to travel to a foreign city, we don't expect strangers to pull us into their homes, right? We would either stay at a hotel or, or you know, we would make other arrangements or stay with somebody that we know. We wouldn't just stay with random people. So, it's, so what's the deal here? These individuals are expecting to spend the night with strangers. Well, there's two elements that make this a surprising detail. One is the cultural expectation in those days when there were foreigners that would come in or there were strangers that would come into the city. It was considered the hospitable thing to do to provide for them, not just lodging for the night, but help them with their animals, to provide a place where their animals could feed, a place where their animals could, could, to, could uh, refresh themselves with water and, and things of that nature. It wasn't simply about caring. It wasn't simply uh, just a, a, a polite thing to do. In many ways, it was a physical necessity for the sake of their animals and for the sake of their, their family as they're traveling along. It was the hospitable thing to do. The second layer with that is the law of Moses was very clear about how the Israelites were to treat sojourners who were traveling through the land. Because the people of Israel were a sojourning people, God had called the people to be a hospitable people to those who were sojourning through the land, whether that be countrymen or whether that be other Gentiles. They were to be a hospitable people because of who that God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they were sojourners leaving Egypt, coming into Israel, so, that, so they too were to treat other sojourners with hospitality. But this man is not receiving the hospitality that is expected by the law of Moses and that is expected by the cultural expectations of the day. And so that's a surprise. It raises eyebrows. You say, okay, what's going on here? Why is this man spending the night in the open square? That's unusual. That's not right culturally by custom there. And it stands out like a sore thumb after reading this over-the-top hospitality that his father-in-law was given. That level of hospitality, the people of Gibeah shouldn't necessarily have risen to that level but they should have provided him something, a place to stay for the night. So they stand in stark contrast to one another, and the irony only grows as we continue to read. Let's continue on with verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning at Gibeah. The, man, the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, oh, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Benjamin in Judah and I am going into the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. And we have straw and feed for our donkeys, when, with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man if, with your servants. And there's no lack of anything. So even though he's acknowledging this reality, yeah, that we're not being shown hospitality here. We're, we're not being welcomed into someone's home. He's assuring the stranger, we do have everything we need, though. We've got our provisions. We have our food. There's no lack of anything. So he's, he does, he's not trying to be a burden upon this old man. And yet, verse 20, the old man says... Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. 
So finally, now we have a man here who is showing him the hospitality that we would expect, that, that, that would have been proper by custom and by the law of Moses, providing that level of care. But he seems rather urgent with his interactions with this man. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I will care for all you want. The, only the, just whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square seems as though that he is aware of what lurks within his own city. And that is what we are about to see as we continue to unfold the text, that his urgency is fueled by a particular reason. And we're about to see some shocking immorality on the part of the men of the city. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows. They surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, know my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Of course, we know that when the men say, hey, we want to know this man, they're not talking about how, oh, we just, we want to get to know one another. We want to meet him. We want to be introduced. Now, in Scripture, that that terminology of knowing is often a a euphemism for sexual activity. And so he says, no, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Verse 24, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where his master was until it was light. There are many, many details in this text that are just, they're difficult. And even as we read this, you might be saying to yourself, hey, you know, this, this, this kind of sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit. And that thought comes to your mind that, and that there's, oh, there's, there's many parallels within this text that are between there's Genesis 19 and Judges 19, the, the, the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, even down to the verbs in the, uh, to, for the actions that are taking place, many parallels along the way, many details. The accounts aren't just similar, but, but it seems as though the author patterned his telling of the story after the pattern of Genesis 19 while holding true to the events that happened in Gibeah. And so with shocking detail... We have this account. You know, from time to time, when, when there are new cities that get established in different places, sometimes they're, they're given a name with the word new tacked in front. They're named after an existing city, even right, right here. We have New Albany, right? That's, there's Albany, New York. Well, here we are in New Albany. Well, there's New England. There's New Hampshire. There's They're named after the older places, and sometimes they're named that way for different reasons. Sometimes people think it resembles that place, or they just want to remember. Different reasons for people naming it that way. Well, there's one commentator that I was reading this week who called Gibeah New Sodom because of the sins that were present here. As if simply being inhospitable wasn't enough, the men of the city, they, they ambush this house in order to gang rape, not the concubine, but the man. 
Their wickedness. Their wickedness is astounding. When we hear the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, those were, those were Gentile cities. Those were people who were not followers of Yahweh, the one true God. But this, this is Gibeah, city of Benjamin. This, this is in Israel. This, is, this shouldn't be happening inside of Israel. This, is, this isn't Gentile Sodom. This, is, this isn't Gentile Jebus, right? This man, this man turned away from Jebus because he was concerned that he would go into the city of the Gentiles and what would happen to him there. And now here he is in the city of Gibeah amongst his own countrymen. And these men come to rape him. Now, the, the, the master of the house, this man here, he comes out and, and he seeks to defend his guest. And then we could say, okay, yep, that's, that's a good thing to do. He's seeking to defend his guest. He urges the men of the city to not do what he rightly calls a wicked and vile thing. And that word that he uses for vile, it's a very strong term. It's, 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 it's outrageous. It's disgraceful. It's foolish. It's, it's willfully sinful. And he uses this strong terminology, do not act so wickedly, do not do this vile, this disgraceful, this outrageous thing. This is an outrageous thing. These things shouldn't be happening. But instead of continuing on with that line of reasoning and recognizing the vileness of all the circumstances that are surrounding there, he does something that is just as vile, if not more so by offering them his own virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man do not do this outrageous thing. And that outrageous in the in the Hebrew text, that's that same word that was used for vile in the verse before. Do not do this vile, do not do this outrageous thing. Here, take them. Take these women that violate them. And, and that word for violate can legitimately be translated as rape. Rape them, but don't rape this man. This would be outrageous, but, but, but you can violate these women. The men wouldn't listen. They continued to press against the house so that the man, rather than do what is honorable and protect his concubine, he grabs her and throws her outside to the men. In frantic fear of his own life, he forces her outside. And in my mind's eye, I'm just that scene of him grabbing her, screaming, crying out as she's forced, knowing what would happen to her as she goes out that door. And then the city. Rape and abuse her and leave her on the doorstep. Passages like this, you read through the details and you want to just, sometimes you just want to get through it because it is just so unpleasant. And yet the longer that we linger, the worse that it seems to get as we just examine the details and we go through, the more you look at them, the more as we see, think about how this scene would unfold, the more vile this text and this behavior becomes. And certainly what the men of the city, that what, they, what they desired to do, what they set out to do, that was a vile and wicked thing. And what they ended up doing was vile and was wicked, pure evil. But the man, the Levites, his host, God designed men to be the leaders and protectors and providers for their households. And these men cower in fear and cowardice and callously give these women over to be abused. 
There's hardly sufficient words to describe the abdication of responsibility of these men. The evil that happens here cannot be overstated. God literally rains down fire from heaven to destroy the last cities that acted in this way. Sodom and Gomorrah became infamous for their actions. So much so that we have terminology that exists to this day when we speak of sodomy. It's in our legal codes. Even people who don't have much by way of biblical literacy, they know what sodomy refers to. They know what that means. This account of what happened in Gibeah, it hasn't become quite as infamous as that. But it still became infamous enough that Hosea uses it as an illustration when he is confronting the people. Hosea 9 verse 9 says, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. This isn't the end of the story. As shocking as, and as awful as this immorality is and that it would happen within Israel, this isn't the end. The Levites' response is shocking as well. Verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go out his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. The callousness of this man. He comes out and he finds her lying on the ground. Hey, get up, it's time to go. Earlier in this text, the narrator calls him her husband. Here in verse 27, he is referred to as her master. This is what sin does. Strips people of their personhood. This man was not treating her as, as his spouse. I know it's his, his concubine, it's his, but it's still this individual that is considered married to. But his actions are at the point where he's not even viewing her as a person anymore. He's viewing her as almost as property, as the text alludes to that, with referring to as her master. It's not her, it's not her husband. He's not treating her like that. He has stripped her of her personhood, treating her like an animal, which we see even more as we continue to read. Verse 29. When he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. There's a question that this text makes makes us ask as we read this and as we see his actions here. Was she already dead? Or did he kill her? In verse 28 it says she didn't respond to his callous instruction, get up, it's time to go. But the text also didn't say that she was dead. 
We might infer it from the text, but the ambiguity that is present may lead, may be intentional on the part of the narrator. We're left to wonder who actually killed this woman. Did she die from her abuse at the hands of the men of the city, or did her own husband murder her? This is complicated by the next chapter in verse 5, chapter 20, verse 5. It says, this is the man as he is recounting what has happened, telling the people. He says, the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. But he doesn't say there that they killed her. He just says she is dead. And I can't help but wonder if he is the one who did the deed himself. Again, rather than being the provider, the leader, and the protector that he is supposed to be, he cowardly fails to defend her, fails to protect her, and then very possibly is the one to murder her himself. Cuts her up, mails her to all the tribes, who are absolutely shocked at these things. They say, such a thing has never been done. There's a little bit of ambiguity there. What are, they, what are they referring to there? Are they talking about the rape? Are they talking about the hacking her to pieces? Are they talking about the whole thing, the whole, everything all together? While the text is ambiguous there, I lean towards the, the, the whole event, the whole circumstance surrounding anything. There's never been anything that's happened like this in, the day, in Israel since the day they've been leaving the land of Egypt where this horrible account of this, this abuse that has happened and then ripping this woman apart limb by limb and sending her out. These things have never happened. is truly a difficult passage to read. It's uncomfortable. We wrestle with why or why is this text here? It is just it, it is so so uncomfortable to get through. It can make us squirm in our seats and make it just sick to our stomachs. Perhaps fill us with rage. Brothers and sisters, that's the point. We're supposed to be uncomfortable with this. This should bother us to our very core of our being. This text shows us in a graphic way what happens when we reject the Lord as King. And it isn't a pretty picture. inhospitality towards their own countrymen, men chasing after unnatural and vile immorality, women treated worse than animals. But ultimately, when we consider what is happening in this text and as we reflect upon this passage, and when we rightly understand the context of the Scriptures, as one theologian put it, the problem is not particular sins, the problem is sin. It's the wickedness of the human heart. When we forsake the king and when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, this is where this leads us. This is where this pathway leads us. When we read what is happening here, it doesn't take a genius to, to just even just take a look at the world around us and to see the abuse that occurs in the world around us and see, yep, it holds true. When we forsake the king, when a, when a society rejects the Lord as king, we see immorality in our land. We see abuse within our lands. And as our culture has become increasingly hostile to the Word of God. It has manifested the same kinds of sins. But what we must grasp and what we must realize is that those sins don't just exist in the world out there. But the propensity 
for those same sins as present within our own very hearts as well. This text is not just a a window for us to look through and to see what Israel was like, but it's a mirror that shows us our own heart when, when we reject the king, when we refuse to submit to what God has said in his word for how we ought to be living, when when we do what is right within our own lives, this text is a mirror that shows us where that pathway leads. And it's an awful picture. It is an awful picture. This whole sermon series is titled, In Need of a King. As we are getting towards this end of the book, we only have a couple of chapters left and it's all related to this final story. This phrase has been repeated several times. It will show up one more time as we get to the end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author is striving for the need for a godly king. There needs to be a godly king. But we know, standing this side of the cross of Christ, knowing all the history of the nation of Israel and all the kings that they had in their history and all the, all the ones that were risen, and there were some that were better than others. There were many, though, that were wicked. But we know that they are all ultimately insufficient. We don't just need a godly king. We need to be in submission to the king of kings. We need Jesus Christ. I can't help but think of the text of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and and cast away their cords from us. It's easy for us to look out and see the, the carnage that rebellion brings when we look at the world out there, but this is where sin leads all of us. The namelessness of the characters of the story are to help us realize that this isn't just isolated to these individuals in this particular point in time, but this is the propensity of our own hearts. But praise be to God. Because Jesus Christ is the King and He offers cleansing from this sin. He offers freedom from this pathway, this, this, this way of all each of us going our own way and doing what seems right in our own eyes. Isaiah wrote years later that that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each gone our own way. We are just like the people within the book of Judges. If it were not for the grace of Jesus Christ, if it were not for Him coming into this world and dying in our place, we would all go our own way and continue on the same pathway that led the people of Israel to this moment in the book of Judges. But he offers us that way as we observed, even as we observed the Lord's table this morning reflecting upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even while we were yet sinners, just like the people in this book, just like this Levite and this man, this is us apart from the grace of Christ. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He has provided this way to be made right with the Father. And He will save all those who trust in Him and Him alone. He sets our feet upon the path of righteousness that we might follow after Him. That we may live lives of obedience to Him. If we reject the rulership of God in our lives. Chaos is the inevitable result. 
but it doesn't have to be. Because we can look unto the Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, and we can look to Him and live. Father, I thank you for this passage. Lord, it is a hard passage. Lord, I pray that we would never think of ourselves as individuals who are too beyond sin, too beyond immorality, that we let down our guard. You've said in your word that sin is crouching at the door. You wrote in the book of First Peter that our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. <clears throat> we are all tempted, Lord, to go our own way. And when we do that, when we walk in this pathway, it has consequences. Well, we may not even see the results of those consequences fully within our own lives, but our children and our children's children. <clears throat> I pray, Lord, that you would help us to forsake our own way and to pursue the way of righteousness, to pursue the way that you have laid forth in your word, beginning with faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, and that you would keep us, guard us, direct us, help us to faithfully teach our children to live according to your way, that we may not see these patterns manifested within those who come after us. I thank you so much for Jesus Christ, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that there is a way to break out of this cycle of sin that is so present within the book of Judges that it just brings us down and down and down. But Jesus Christ lifts us up and takes us out of this evil, of this wickedness. We can escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Thank you, and I praise you for that. May you help us to walk the narrow way. I pray all of this in the name of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.